Listener Production. Hey, Sasha Barber Gat with you. Just before we get into today's episode, I wanted to let you know about a fascinating new podcast from one of our colleagues here at Listener. Joey Watson is an investigative journo, and he's gone on a three-year journey to uncover the spy who betrayed Australia during the Cold War. And now he's sharing that story with us. The new season of Secrets We Keep, Nest of Traders, is available now on Listener and wherever else you listen to podcasts. Give it a listen. We know you'll love it. All right, let's get into today's briefing with Bencion Siebert. Hi, Sasha. Human trafficking is a growing problem in Australia. It includes abuses like forced marriage, sexual exploitation, child trafficking, forced labour, domestic servitude and even slavery. Hundreds of instances of human trafficking are occurring in Australia each year, according to the Australian Federal Police, and that's risen 13% year on year. In traditional days, we used to think of people in chains, and now it's often more a sense of control, psychological control, where people exercise a sense of ownership over another. A deep dive on human trafficking in the second half of the briefing. But first, let's get into today's biggest news stories. It's Tuesday, February 20. The widow of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny has vowed to keep fighting her husband's fight for a free Russia. Yulia Navalnaya released a video message overnight. Here's part of it. I will continue the work of Alexei Navalny, continue the fight for our country. I urge you to stand next to me to share not only my grief and endless pain, which has enveloped us and does not let us go. She's also accused Russian authorities of refusing to hand over her husband's body to his mother in order to cover up his alleged killing. The Russian prison service says Navalny fell unconscious and died suddenly at a remote Arctic prison last week. The Kremlin's denied involvement in his death, which it says is being investigated, Bencion. Yeah, but of course, various world leaders, including Australian PM Anthony Albanese, US President Joe Biden and representatives of the European Union, Sweden, Poland and Norway, among others, have already pinned responsibility for the death on Vladimir Putin and his regime. Of course, Even if you do accept Russia's narrative that he died of, quote, sudden death syndrome, he was being held in a penal colony in the Arctic where it's something like 30 degrees below zero. So that could have something to do with it, Sasha. Russian authorities have also said they're going to block access to his body for two more weeks to carry out tests. There were also reports that came through that someone had cited his remains and they were bruised. So... The questions are only going to continue until we actually get some answers, which is highly unlikely when it's involving Russia. The European Union has released a statement as well on Alexei Navalny's death, calling for an international investigation into the circumstances. Uh, And it's also called for the immediate release of 400 people who we spoke about yesterday who have been detained while paying tribute to Navalny in Russia. And US President Joe Biden said the US is also considering imposing further sanctions. So this is going to have big ripple effects, Spencion. But whether it changes anything in Russia, that's another question. Absolutely. And we did a explainer episode yesterday on who Alexei Navalny is, why he is so important to Vladimir Putin and what his death means for the future. That was yesterday. So check in your feed if you're interested. 
Drug and alcohol testing our politicians is being floated as a possibility after a Nationals MP was filmed appearing to slur her words at a Senate estimates hearing. Labor Senator Malandiri McCarthy said on Q&A last night she'd support the idea. Why are you against drug and alcohol testing for politicians? You can bring it in if you want to, Patricia. I have no problems with it. So not exactly a glowing endorsement, but something she says that she'd support if it came along. The Assistant Minister for Indigenous Australians and Indigenous Health also went on to say that politicians need to remember their privileged positions and that the public expects the very best of them. New South Wales Senator Perrin Davey was forced to defend herself when footage of her at the Senate Estimates hearing emerged over the weekend. She admitted she had two wines at staff drinks beforehand but she was not drunk. It comes after Barnaby Joyce was filmed lying on a footpath in Canberra late at night and he's since revealed he's given up alcohol for Lent, Benzion. <laughs> Good for him. Um, mm. <laughs> but, of course, I don't think this policy would apply to conduct like lying on the ground at night when you're outside of uh, parliament hours. But mm. there is probably a good argument that if you need to make sure you're um, compass mentis and you're, you know, making the laws of the land, it's probably a good idea that you're not influenced by alcohol or drugs at the time, don't you think? Mm. Oh, absolutely. I don't know how I feel about drug and alcohol testing. I went back and there was this uh, old petition from uh, 2022 and it was talking about this. This was a member of the public who suggested that pollies should be breathalyzed before they go on the floor of parliament and also randomly when they're in their electorates. I mean, you and I are expected to come to work and be, as you said, coppice mentis and not drunk or affected by drugs. You know, why would we put those additional standards on politicians? Like, shouldn't we be able to trust them to just get the job done and not be wasted while they're doing it? Come on, Sasha. Shouldn't we be able to trust them? Really? <laughs> well, you know, it's the benefit of the doubt, <laughs> the benefit of the doubt, I reckon, in this case. I mean, you know, like you said, Barnaby Joyce, I mean, that instance, he would not have been reprimanded if he was being drug and alcohol tested before going onto the floor of parliament. That was after hours, you know. I think hmm. that our politicians are people and they have the right to enjoy their spare time as much as they want. Don't get me wrong, I don't want Polly's drunk on the floor of Parliament making laws for us, mm-hmm. uh, but I feel like drug and alcohol testing is probably taking it a step too far. Yeah, I mean, I think it's taking it a step too far if this is randomly in their electorates, but I do think that there's probably an argument to suggest that uh, we could test them before they get into Parliament because it really is rather important what they do in that building. And how's this for a fan? A woman has revealed she went into labour at Taylor Swift's first Melbourne show but stayed for the whole concert anyway. Tennille Smith was one of the 96,000 people that packed into the MCG last Friday night when she realised the contractions she'd been feeling all day were the real deal. The 29-year-old decided to stay, though, and hustled home to change out of her sequins before rushing to hospital later that night where she gave birth 20 minutes after arriving. Tennille told the media there was, quote, no way she was giving up her ticket, calling it a night to remember. And God, that is a night to remember. (laughs) 
I love this from Tanil. Good on her. I mean, you know, she said it was her second baby, uh, so she wasn't as stressed. She said maybe if she was a first-time mum, she wouldn't have been quite so lax about the whole thing. Um, but that's dedication, man. Like, you got it. Like, these Swifties, they are for real. The fact she sat through. And remember, Taylor Swift doesn't just go up for an hour. She's on stage for three-plus hours performing, and Tanil sat through the whole thing. Then you have to get out of the stadium. It's not as simple as going, okay, it's over. Then she apparently... In the article I read, she was saying that her friends were like yelling at people to get out of the way. And she's like waddling <laughs> through, holding her tummy, being like, all right, got to get to the hospital. Um, but yeah, I mean, God, I'm loving a lot of the Taylor Swift content that's coming out this week. This is my favourite story so far, though. But that that is such a good point. Like it, it's hard enough to get an Uber or a taxi after a concert. Imagine trying to get to the hospital and trying to wade through all those people. I just think if you're about to give birth, leave the concert. That's that's my advice. Oh, well, everything was fine. It all worked out well. There's first aid people <laughs> on hand. I'm sure the baby would have been fine either way. But yes, healthy bub, all good. Go to Neil. Glad you got to enjoy your concert. Wonderful. All right. Thanks, Sasha. That's it for the headlines. Now it's time for today's deep dive into the growing scourge of human trafficking in Australia. It's hard to imagine that in Australia in 2024, there'd be slavery, forced marriage, child trafficking or sexual exploitation. Well, the Australian Federal Police says there's been a 13% increase in human trafficking, including the different aspects of the problem year on year. In fact, studies have found there could be as many as 41,000 people trapped in slavery in Australia. A Queensland man was charged earlier this year with 46 offences, including grooming, wage theft and movement restriction. He'd allegedly been keeping people trapped on fishing boats. So how and why is human trafficking growing here, particularly in 2024, when we'd assume there's greater awareness and greater focus on prosecuting people for these offences? Justine Nolan is a professor in the Faculty of Law and Justice at UNSW Sydney and the director of the Australian Human Rights Institute. Justine, thanks for joining us. Could you start off by explaining to us exactly what modern slavery is? It's a complex term that's it's sort of used as an umbrella term to uh, include a number of crimes. It includes slavery, which is sort of ownership of a person. And in, in traditional days, we used to think of people in chains. And now it's often more a sense of control, psychological control, where people exercise a sense of ownership over another. Um, and things like forced marriage, human trafficking, where people are coerced and threatened to sort of move across or within borders forced labour. Within the workplace, that's where people are coerced or threatened um, and don't have freedom to change jobs. Debt bondage, domestic servitude, all of these together constitute modern slavery. So it's it's this big term that accounts for all these different types of crimes. Mm. Tell us a bit more about how it differs from our perhaps traditional understanding of slavery, as you said, people in chains. You know, you've explained what the types are, but how different is it in terms of a method of control? So when we think of slavery, a lot of people tend to think of the transatlantic slave trade, where people were literally transported in chains and then kept in chains, you know, often when they arrived. Now, the sad thing is that is sometimes still happening, but it's it's more unusual, but it's, you know, we're still seeing cases of that, for example, on fishing boats, where people are sometimes chained to those boats, trapped in those workplaces, that boat for years on end. But what you're seeing more now is where people are 
they may go to a job and when they go to that job, say they're migrants who've entered our country, their identification documents or passports are confiscated. So immediately that means that they can't change jobs. Or it might be that you have an international student working in a franchise in downtown Sydney and there's threats made by the um, employer that I'm going to report you. You're, you know, if you're working overtime, I'm going to, you're breaching your visa conditions or in other situations it might be threat to a family. So it's this form of coercion that is often psychological and what the employer is doing is asserting control over the person's basically saying, I own you, you work for me, you don't have the freedom to leave. And so that's more likely what we see now in terms of forced labour in the workplace. Mm. And that's happening in Australia? Yes. I mean, it's happening in every country in the world. We tend to, again, think of something like modern slavery is happening over there. It's not in our backyard. Walk Free has estimated that there's 41,000 people in Australia trapped in modern slavery in all different forms. We know that there's been cases in agriculture, in the meatpacking industry, in sexual exploitation, forced marriages. All of those things have been documented in Australia. Let's talk specifically about human trafficking. There are recent figures from the AFP that find there's been a 13% rise in that in Australia. How is this happening and what does it look like in practice? So there's been a sort of a slight increase year on year with this. I think this is sort of a couple of things. One is that there's been a lot more education and outreach by the AFP and others around this crime. So explaining what it is, looking out, you know, saying this is what you need to look for. These are the types of things where people may be in distress And so I think in terms of that, there's been greater awareness, so there's been greater discovery. So that's a good thing that the numbers are increasing because we're starting to actually get reporting around it. But I think we're probably still just, you know, skimming the surface of, you know, what it is. It can happen in a number of ways in Australia. It might be on entry um, into Australia where people are trafficked for a reason that they may be exploited when they get here, and that might often be in the form of forced marriage or forced labour. So they're recruited, say, in Fiji for a particular job, then they get here, that job is nothing like that, and they're also then trapped in that job where their passport is confiscated. Or trafficking may also happen on exit, where people are being taken out of the country um, for the purpose of different reasons, usually, again, some form of sexual exploitation or labour Trafficking is that movement of people with that threat of coercion where they're, again, exerting control over people. Is it primarily criminals involved in this sort of thing, whether it be, and I know obviously they're a criminal if they engage in human trafficking, but I'm talking, is this happening down the street from my place and I just have no idea about it? Yeah, I mean, that's the thing about modern slavery is that it often happens under the radar. Mm. And no, it's not all, you know, sort of what we would consider your classic, you know, criminal enterprise. So sometimes when people are recruited for these jobs, it's often family members who are those middlemen. So the the people who are sort of doing the recruitment where workers may pay an excessive recruitment fee, then they get to the sort of the country or the workplace and the job is nothing like that. But sometimes it's a family that's an intermediary and that's not sort of unusual. But you'll also see that, you know, here we are in the centre of Sydney, it may be happening, um, well, it is happening, you know, a couple of streets away, particularly sexual exploitation. In other parts of the world, not in Australia, you've also seen it in car washes, in nail bars. So, Mm. you know, it's sort of innocuous workplaces, but there's that sort of level of coercion that we would consider modern slavery. Let's talk about forced marriages. Just how prevalent is that in Australia at the moment and what work's being done to stamp it out? So in the the sort of the last year that they gave um, stats, there was 90 reports of forced marriage in Australia that along with trafficking are our sort of two highest uh, elements of modern slavery. But again, you know, we would estimate that those figures are vastly underreporting. 
what's being done is that, you know, the AFP in particular has been doing a lot of outreach. Um, what they're trying to do is sort of make people aware and prevent it rather than try and be reactive around it. So a lot of that is around education. And so they have invested a lot of time and money in the last couple of years in educating their own workforce to say, you know, this is what you should be on the lookout for and we are here to help you rather than we are here to, you know, put people away, et cetera. They're trying to play very much an educative role and I think that that's why we're seeing some of the numbers increasing, which is a good thing. Mm. What about domestic servitude? That's another one that you mentioned that I haven't specifically heard of. Is that literally people coming in to work in your home? Yeah, so that's more unusual in Australia. There were 16 reports of that in the the year that they reported the stats. There have been a couple of sort of high-profile cases. The classic stereotype is that um, generally someone has come from overseas with a sort of servant, if you like, and then we've seen this particularly in Canberra in sort of embassy situations um, where people have come, then they're basically locked in those homes and trapped and unable to leave. Mm. So there have been a couple of um, cases in the last couple of years where we've seen that um, and that has been diplomatic missions where people have brought a person with them into the country and then that person has been unable to leave that home um, and they're trapped there working there seven days a week. I do want to talk about the cultural issues. So in terms of what we call forced marriages here in some countries and where these people have come to Australia, it is their culture. It is how they have done things back home and that's and they're just bringing it to their new home in Australia. Can we enforce our own expectations when it comes to a cultural issue? There's a big difference between an arranged marriage and a forced marriage. An arranged marriage, I would argue, is that sort of that you know, cultural acceptance in many countries. You know, unusual in our traditional heritage here, but Australia is a very multicultural society now. So arranged marriages would still happen in Australia. And that's that's different. Forced marriages, clearly, um, when someone is being threatened and forced against their will, and sometimes moved between countries in order to do that. And that is a crime. And that is happening here. And again, that's often, again, kept in a family. Mm. So it's people within a family who are forcing someone to, you know, into a marriage. And that is that is very different from an arranged marriage, which I would argue is cultural. But yes, we can enforce our laws in this situation. Mm. Let's talk about the government response. What are we seeing from our lawmakers to make a difference in this space? So in um, 2018, Australia passed the Modern Slavery Act. And the Modern Slavery Act is primarily focused on business and the role. And that's really looking at modern slavery and business operations and global supply chain. So that's not your classic forced marriage situation, but it is forced labour, it's trafficking, it's debt bondage, it's deceptive recruiting, all other elements of modern slavery. And under that act, what companies have to do if they're over $100 million in consolidated revenue is produce an annual report onto the risks of modern slavery. And basically it's an obligation to report, but not really an obligation to act. The problem is also that the Act doesn't have any enforceable sanctions around that. We know that there's a a rate of non-compliance where some companies are simply not reporting or the problem is actually more that the quality of reporting is low and it's very superficial. Um, We did a study across two years of a report called Paper Promises, which showed that companies were simply not following through on this. So we have a law. Um, which is a great start, but it doesn't have any really follow through. And so a review, um, independent review that the government sanctioned last year said that there needs to change. And one of the things they said is that um, there should be penalties introduced and the government should introduce and establish an anti-slavery commissioner. Mm -hmm. And is that likely to happen anytime soon? 
Well, the government is currently putting doing an inquiry about the Anti-Slavery Commissioner and is due to report on February 21. There's a bill before Parliament which establishes the position of the Anti-Slavery Commissioner, but at the moment it's almost purely an educative role and that role needs to be a regulator as well. That's what we've seen in the UK. Um, they need to have the power to investigate these types of crimes along with education. So what we need to see is that bill strengthened, which hopefully um, will happen, but we'll have a report in that in the next couple of weeks. You mentioned businesses there kind of being covered by this Modern Slavery Act. We've talked about the government. What about us? What about listeners who might be sitting there going, I think I might know someone who is being affected by this or maybe doesn't know what to look out for? What's your advice to them? Education is the first thing. So if we don't know about something, we can't act. You know, there's a lot of great material around there, particularly by the AFP and others around what does modern slavery look like and what are the types of signs of distress in relation to that. So one thing is to educate yourself. And the second is to ask questions. People may see something and move on. And whether it's, you know, someone you see in a workplace that you're going to, or it might be the companies that you buy from. The more you ask questions about, you know, do you know where this product came? Like what what sort of origin of this product? What are you doing in terms of reporting? There's people in companies who are working hard on this and they, they often need us to ask questions in order to get traction within their own company. So to me, I think it's two, it's education, being aware, but also proactively asking companies questions um, around, you know, where they're buying their products, goods and services. That was Justine Nolan, a Professor of Law and Justice at UNSW and Director of the Australian Human Rights Institute. And today's topic was a suggestion from a listener. Thank you, Leanne, for getting in touch. And if you're listening to this and you've got an idea for an episode, please do get in touch. You can shoot us a DM via our Instagram page, The Briefing on Insta. And that is all for today's episode of The Briefing. Check back in your feed, The Sabo, at three for another episode. I'm Sasha Barbagat. Thank you for listening. Listener.